Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Today's podcast will be different than our typical episodes. For most of the summer, while the court was on its annual break, we kept reporting on one particular case. Heated debate over gun rights. The Supreme Court granted a petition for certiorari. Most consequential ruling on the scope of the Second Amendment. And agreed to hear the case of New York. That's right. That case is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Kevin Bruin. And as you might have guessed, it's a case about guns. As you'll hear in a bit, Bruin could be a transformative Second Amendment case with the potential to alter the future of gun control in America. And the justices just heard arguments in the case during the November sitting it just wrapped up. So today you're going to hear a more produced episode featuring the interviews we did with attorneys, law professors, and others working on this issue. We're going to try to answer the question, what's really at stake here? Uh, So Jordan, should we get into it? Let's do it. Okay, so the case is obviously about the Second Amendment and gun rights. And just so that we're all on the same page, let's hear the amendment read out loud in its entirety by arguably the most famous advocate ever, uh, the late Charleston Heston. Well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment. So that's it. You heard it from Moses himself. That's the whole Second Amendment. Just one sentence. Kind of a weird sentence, but one sentence nonetheless. And for most of American history, the meaning wasn't really litigated at the court. It came up about as much as the Third Amendment. That's right, the Third Amendment, the one about quartering soldiers. That's the one that's so irrelevant that John Mulaney did a stand-up bit about it on Saturday Night Live last year. And don't you thank God every day for that Third Amendment? The other afternoon, this was Tuesday, I was in my apartment and the buzzer rang, and it was the 101st Airborne. Of course, the Second Amendment has become very relevant in recent years. And its importance has totally changed over the past decade. The folks over at Radiolab, with their more perfect podcast, did a really close and detailed look at this. And that's not what we're going to do here. Yeah, you should definitely check that one out. We'll put a link in the description of this episode. But to sum up, gun rights advocates led by the NRA gained both political power and influence in the 80s and 90s, and the movement adopted a sophisticated legal strategy. All of this culminated in 2008 when the court heard the case of District of Columbia versus Heller. And I don't think I'm exaggerating at all when I say the case totally transformed what we thought we knew about the Second Amendment. We will hear argument today in case 07290, District of Columbia versus Heller. Mr. Dellinger. Yeah, a lot of the people we talked to for this podcast said there's a before Heller and an after Heller. The 2008 Heller decision was certainly a landmark decision that radically changed how we understood uh, the Second Amendment, at least how courts understood the Second Amendment. That was Adam Winkler. He's a law professor at UCLA and one of the most prominent scholars on the evolution of the Second Amendment. And what he's talking about here is how the court interpreted the Constitution to guarantee the right of an individual to own a gun, not just the right of a militia. Now that may sound kind of wonky, but Winkler says it really changed everything. Although many Americans have thought that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms for a long time, Uh, the federal courts had generally said something different, that the Second Amendment protected the right of states to have militias free from federal interference. But 2008 really changed that. 
The Heller case involved a plaintiff from Washington, D.C. who wanted to keep a gun in his home, but he couldn't get permission from D.C.'s strict permitting office. And in a 5-4 ruling, the court said, no, that's not okay. It said the Second Amendment contains an individual right to have a gun, regardless of militia service. Well, at least within the confines of their own home. A decisive ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court saying Americans can keep guns at home for self-defense. Right, and that part's important. So Heller was a huge decision for both gun rights and gun control, but this landmark ruling still left open some big questions. That's right. So Daryl Miller, a law professor at Duke University, who also specializes in Second Amendment law, said Heller was actually less sweeping than we realized at the time. Heller was just really about the very narrow issue about whether a person had to be a member of an organized militia to be able to possess a firearm for personal purposes like self-defense in the home. And the court answered that question in the negative. Um, But it didn't answer all these sort of ancillary and important questions like, you know, can you carry the gun outside? Can you carry the gun in your car? Is this kind of firearm a protected firearm or this other kind? Uh, all these questions were left for further development, um, and that's where we are now 10 years afterward. And that's exactly where the Bruin case is right now. So the plaintiffs in the Bruin case live in a state that requires a special license to carry a concealed firearm in public. In fact, the state, New York, has one of the toughest licensing regimes in the country to obtain a concealed carry permit. And to get a permit to carry a gun, the state requires that you show that your life is in danger. Now, New York determined that the plaintiffs here did not meet that standard and their applications were denied. And that's what they're challenging in this Supreme Court case. Here's the man who argued before the Supreme Court on their behalf, former Solicitor General Paul Clement. And at the end of the day, I think what it means to give somebody a constitutional right is that they don't have to satisfy a government official that they have a really good need to exercise it or they face atypical risks. And one of the themes Clement focused on during the argument was that people have the right to own guns, so the court shouldn't treat that right worse than other rights. But according to the other side, that's kind of begging the question. If you have an unrestricted right to carry a gun outside, then yes, that right should be upheld. But the question is, do you even have that right? Here's Brian Fletcher, the deputy solicitor general who argued for the Biden administration. I think the problem with Mr. Clement's formulation is that it assumes the conclusion. If you had a right, the the Second Amendment conferred a right to carry around a weapon for possible self-defense just because an individual wants to have one available, then obviously you couldn't take away that right or make it contingent upon a discretionary determination. One of the interesting things about the arguments last week was that Paul Clement faced some pretty tough questions about just how far he thinks this should go. In other words, should people really be allowed to carry a gun everywhere? And those questions came even from some of the court's most conservative justices. Right. For example, Chief Justice Roberts had a bunch of questions about the limits of that idea, like in this exchange. What sort of place do you think they could be excluded from. In other words, you can get a permit, but the state can impose certain restrictions. For example, uh, any place in which alcohol is served. So and they say you cannot carry your gun in any place where alcohol is served. So, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think you'd probably the right way to look at those cases would be look at them case by case and say, okay, and this court in Heller, for example, said sensitive places include government buildings and schools. 
Um, I think those you can probably tap into a pretty good tradition. I think any place that served alcohol would be, a, 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 you know, a tougher case for the government. I think we would have a stronger case. Um, they might be able to condition the license holder on not consuming any alcohol. There might be a variety of laws, and we could have those debates. But what about uh, the football stadium? I, I, I think, again, football stadium, you'd probably take it on its own. Um, and or this exchange with Justices Kagan and Barrett. Suppose the state says uh, no protest or event that has more than 10,000 people. I, I, I think that might be, a, you know, trickier. Maybe they could justify that under strict scrutiny, but I don't think that would be a sensitive places but restriction. But why not? I mean, I guess it's about the level of generality. All these questions that Justice Kagan's asking you or that the chief asked you, if, if you concede, as I think the historical record requires you to, that states did um, outlaw guns in sensitive places, can't we just say Times Square on New Year's Eve is a sensitive place because now we've seen, you know, people are on top of each other. We've, we've had experience with violence. So we're making the judgment. It's a sensitive place. There was also this colloquy with Kagan where Clement, perhaps not wanting to take her question head on, threw some shade on a certain downtown Manhattan University. Manhattan. The They're Chief County started with universities and you said that that would be all right. Did you mean that? Yes, I I, I did mean that. Because that's open for, you know, anybody can walk around the NYU campus. Well, NYU doesn't have much of a campus. (laughs) I would would go back to New York, and I think you'll find that that's wrong. Similarly, the Columbia campus. Columbia's got a campus, and I don't know whether they restrict access at all. Um, and, And, you know, and maybe, you know, if they don't restrict access to parts of the campus, maybe those are parts of the campus where they wouldn't enforce the policy anyways. I, I, the point I'm trying to make, but though, you can't. Uh, hey, Jordan, uh, do you think the justices know that there are other cities uh, aside from New York City? What's that? Oh, sorry, I was just looking at the scores from the Knicks game last night. I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. So that's the basic outline of what the Bruin case is about. But it's not all that it's about. And as with so many cases, there's the question of why did the justices agree to decide this case now? And every person that we talk to from the right and the left, from those who favor loosening gun laws to those who advocate for stricter gun control, all said the same thing. Well, there's no doubt that what changed in the Supreme Court uh, was the 2016 election. Or to put an even finer point on it, What changed were the justices President Trump appointed to the court after he was elected. In addition to the confirmation of Justice Gorsuch, now Justices Kennedy and Ginsburg have been replaced with Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, respectively. So on top of the politics, which are clear, there can be value in clarifying what the law is. Professor Miller, who's a gun control proponent, makes that point. It's not fair to say this is just, you know, just the Federalist Society getting their payout uh, with these justices, because even, I think, some liberals and uh, and many just ordinary Americans uh, might feel a little frustrated that the Supreme Court is not given the kind of clarity that is required to sort of figure out what are what are the bounds of my rights? What What mm. is the level of permissible regulation? It's been 
a decade. Without a doubt, the personnel change uh, has had an impact. But I imagine that there is at least some sense of, of the court saying, okay, we've let the lower courts now work on this for a while. It's time for us to get involved again and set the guidance uh, anew. So this confusion is a big concern for Alan Beck. He's a gun rights attorney who filed an amicus brief in Bruin on behalf of one of his clients. Beck and his colleagues in the gun rights movement have been challenging state laws across the country that restrict all kinds of weapons, not just guns, but also nunchucks, billy clubs, stun guns, you name it. He said states still pass these laws even after Heller because Justice Scalia's Heller opinion was, in some areas, actually pretty vague. You know, we have to actually have a test and the court really needs to just say exactly what they meant by the types of weapons that were protected are in common use. And that's what the court said in Heller. There's, you know, a pretty vague line that says weapons are in common use or protected. They didn't really go into it. They just went from that to handguns are protected. One of the weird parts of this case is how, depending on your judicial philosophy, as you might call it, it can force you to go all the way back to medieval England. Right. So, Jordan, one of the arguments the plaintiffs use in this case is that the law has recognized a right to armed self-defense since long before America was even a country. It's a way to contextualize what the plaintiffs are asking for and demonstrate that it's not actually a radical departure from the way things have been done. Quite the opposite, actually. Robert Cottrell, a law professor at George Washington University, who's written a book on the Heller decision, says the founding fathers envisioned an individual right to bear arms when they wrote the Second Amendment. One of the things I think we have to do is sort of think of, well, what is, in fact, the militia? Uh, You know, and certainly uh, in the late 18th century, they were conceiving of a wide stretch of the population uh, as the militia. The Militia Act of 1792 specifies, I believe, all white men between 18 and and 45. And that's amended in 1862 to include uh, black men. So you're talking about a very large uh, stretch of the population, swath of the population. But according to Winkler, this shows that there was actually pretty strict gun regulation at the time the Second Amendment was ratified. Well, there's been a long history of gun regulation in America. Um, The founding fathers uh, who wrote the Second Amendment had gun laws. Uh, They restricted who could possess firearms, for instance, prohibiting African-Americans, both slave and free, from possessing uh, firearms. Uh, There were restrictions on where you could uh, fire a firearm. uh, And uh, there were, of course, militia laws that required people to register their military-style firearms. Um, And uh, and so this sort of history of regulation continued throughout uh, the course of uh, the American experiment. But as we've already established, the plaintiffs here likely have at least five, probably six votes on the court. Anything can happen, of course, but it seems like a safe bet that the court will give them some kind of victory. What will that mean? How will it change the way guns are regulated in the future? Well, it's a future that Richard Aborn is not looking forward to. Aborn is a partner with the firm Constantine Cannon, and he's also the head of the Citizens Crime Commission of New York City. 
He also previously served at the head of what is now the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. He says allowing anyone to legally carry a concealed gun in public could make everyday fights turn lethal. If we were to now flood our cities with even more guns, um, I'm afraid that shooting rate will go up, that murder rate will go up, and we don't know what will happen to the everyday fights that take place in densely populated cities like New York um, if people are armed. Just the other night, there was there's video of, uh, I think, five or six people getting into a pretty bad fist fight because somebody wasn't let into a restaurant when the restaurant asked to see a vaccination card, which is a, now a state regulation. People... Last night I was downtown and heard two people fighting, literally fighting, over a parking spot. I mean, these are dense urban conditions, and when you inject guns into those pretty minor feuds, you can have deadly consequences. Justice Breyer seemed to share that concern during the oral argument. Uh, You think that uh, in New York City, uh, people should have a considerable freedom to carry concealed weapons. I think that people of good moral character who start drinking a lot and who may be there for a football game or or some kind of soccer game can get pretty angry at each other. And if they each have a concealed weapon, who knows? But shootings committed in the heat of passion, as bad as they can be, aren't what strikes fear into a lot of people when they think about the Bruin case. It's mass shootings that are really what's on many people's minds. Since 2012, there have been at least 10 mass shootings in which a dozen or more people were killed, according to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive. That includes the 2017 Las Vegas shooting that killed 60 people and wounded hundreds more. Miller says it's inconceivable that these incidents aren't on the justices' minds as they're weighing how to decide this case. I mean, the justices live in the world. They can't be ignorant of um, any one of a number of news stories of the past decade of, you know, horrific uh, gun violence, either that occurs in... Um, you know, the mass shooting context or the, you know, seemingly relentless um, individual uh, acts of violence that occur um, in especially poor and minority neighborhoods in America. So I think that they're aware, but they're also, you know, dealing with a constitutional right, the Second Amendment, and trying to figure out what that means. Miller also says the court might choose to go really narrow in this case and just strike down the New York concealed carry permit regime, but not rule on the broader issue of whether concealed carry is a constitutional right applicable across the entire nation. Yeah, and in fact, Aborn mentions something along those lines, too, that the wording of the opinion and the breakdown of the votes in this case will also be important. Win or loss in a Supreme Court case is a little bit of a matter of perspective. You could have a ruling go against you but there could be so much leeway in the ruling that you could still accomplish your core principles. So for instance, when Heller came down, everybody said, well, the gun control movement lost. Well, I never really agreed with that. I thought that Heller said, and I don't necessarily disagree with this, that there was a second amendment right to keep a gun in the home for self-defense, but the text in Heller itself left room for other regulation. Hence, we've had now I guess, what is it, 15 years or so, of additional litigation around what Heller means. So we're really going to have to wait to see what the justices write in this opinion. Jordan, I think what he's saying is that when the Bruin case is decided, we probably should hold off on posting our hot takes on social media like two seconds after the opinion is handed down. Sounds like good advice for any case. 
Uh, yeah, that's true, but um, I'm not going to follow it because I know, you know, that's my job. Uh, but good advice. Great for someone else. Okay, so that's going to do it for our super, super deep dive into the Bruin case. Today's episode was produced by the two of us, Kimberly Robinson and Jordan Rubin, along with David Schultz, our producer. This was edited by Josh Block, Seth Stern, John Crawley, and Tom Taylor. And Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Law's podcast. We should also say that the organization Every Town for Gun Safety advocates for universal background checks and other gun control measures. And Bloomberg Law is operated by entities controlled by Michael Bloomberg, who serves as a member of Every Town for Gun Safety's advisory board. Check back in next week when we'll return to our regular programming with a deep dive episode of the court's December sitting. Until then, thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time, we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.